The sermon text this morning will be Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Um, If you would just stand in honor of the word of God and, and we'll read. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Hope y'all are doing well. We are back in the book of Matthew today. We have been going through Matthew for about a year and a half or so. We took a two-week break the last two weeks where we were talking about um, missions, specifically our Columbia mission trip. Then we talked about church planning. And now we're back in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 24, as Ben just read. And um, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, um, we've kind of entitled the, the whole series Messiah because Matthew is over and over trying to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied and told about in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of that. And then um, each time we've been going through specific chapters, maybe chapters 5 through 7 or chapter 13 and on, and we've kind of subtitled um, little, little specific chapters together. Today we're um, starting a new subtitled section, chapters 24 and chapter 25. Those two uh, chapters we're calling Coming King. And this is the, uh, the section where... Um, Jesus is going to do some teaching on end times. I keep doing this because my thing keeps messing up. I'm going to stop because I'm going to obsess over it the whole time. I'm just going to let it be messed up and and not think about it anymore. So anyway, um, so Jesus is going to be explaining the end times. And so what is going on in chapters 24 and 25, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on how that's that's happening. Um, But what I'd like to do first is pray um, before we jump in. And before I pray, I want to say one little specific word about Mother's Day. Pro tip, if your wife is pregnant, you still celebrate Mother's Day um, for, with your first child. You still celebrate Mother's Day today. You better go do something. Um, so anyway, um, today's Mother's Day. And just a, little, um, just a little word on Mother's Day. Today's a day where we um, show appreciation to our mothers, how much we love them, what they've done for us, etc. It's a good thing to do. Um, and as we do that, we, we, should, we should think that's a good thing. But all the while remembering... Um, that there are a group of women that 
want to be mothers if they could. And so I've had ladies come and tell me before that they don't even like to go to church on, on Mother's Day on Sundays because of, you know, the, the uplifting so high of those that actually, that God has grace to be able to have children and they want. And so they're so sad that they, they don't go. And so we want to tr- actually try to bring a balance to that. We appreciate motherhood and we're very glad that the Lord would grace people and, and I'm, I'm glad I have a mom. I think we all are. Um, and so we want to say thank you to, to the moms that have served us well and, and, and taught us if we grew up in a Christian home the gospel or, or whatever. We want to we show honor as the Lord would tell us to do. But those as well that um, want to be moms that maybe aren't yet or are having trouble or anything like that, we want to affirm you and let you know that you are just as honorable. You are just as loved by Christ and his gospel. You are just as precious to Jesus as those that are moms. And so um, today we wanted to make sure that everybody understands that, um, yes, it's a Mother's Day um, where we, we say thank you, but everyone that is a mom or even a mom-to-be or desires to be of a mom, that you are loved by Christ and, and held to be just as important to, to Christ as those that would have children. So um, there will be coincidentally or sovereignly a Mother's Day sh- section of the sermon coming up, um, but that's that's coming. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into Matthew uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. The, as I said, the, this entire kind of section is the coming king, talking about the, the second coming where Jesus comes as king, and it's the end times section of, of Matthew. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you that... Um, your word is amazingly powerful. It has the power to equip us, to train us, to convict us, to lead us into righteousness. There's so many things that your word by the spirit can do in our lives, which frees me up as a, as a pastor, preacher. Like I, I know that it's not dependent upon me and how clever I can be or smooth with words that I can be. And I'm so gracious. I'm so thankful that that's not the case. So Would you come now and be in this room? Fill me with the Spirit, Lord. I want to say what's true and honorable to you, but help me be with everyone here, a student of your word. I want to be a receiver of the things that the Spirit wants to teach just as much as everybody else in this room, even though I might be talking. And so we are utterly dependent upon the Spirit to come and do his work now. So would you do that? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um... Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Sign, Sign, Everywhere, Sign. And if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, that song stuck in your head. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So what's going on here is, uh, I know it's just brutal, like, get it out now, get it out. I don't even like them, guys. Uh, What's going on here as far as, like, the layout of the book is Jesus, in the the course of the entire book of Matthew, has been doing teaching discourses. Um, where basically he's going to stand there and it just means that there's a whole lot of verses in a row with red. Like he is going to do a long, long particular teaching. In the book of Matthew, there are six teaching discourses and this is the sixth, the final one of all teaching discourses. This is some, most of the time known as the Olivet Discourse. You can see right there in verse three, it says he sat on the Mount of Olives. It just means he's, in, he's on the Mount of Olives and he's, he's teaching. Um, sometimes it's also known as his um, end times discourse or the discourse on last things. And so that's what's going on here is um, there's, a, there's a, 
an impetus, there's a, the, the catalyst, a beginning of the reason why he goes into it. And you can see it's right there in verse 3. The disciples come up to him and ask a question. They have a question where they say, um, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age. And so the disciples ask the question, you know, what, what, what's going to happen at the end? And so when Jesus hears that, he goes into a two-chapter um, kind of teaching. Now, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses back then, but a two-chapter uh, answer of what's going on. So what I want to do here is give you over the chapter 24 and 25, um, the coming king, kind of the big picture outline of how Jesus responds to that particular question right there in verse 3. Basically, wh- what's going on here and how can we expect the end times to happen? Um, I want to give you the big picture understanding of how Jesus answers that, and then we're going to um, kind of narrow in on the first section, verses 1 through 14. So the big picture is um, starting at 24, verse 1, going all, all the way through to verse 31. That section, 24, 1 through 31, what Jesus is going to do in that, in that 31 verses is give the disciples a basic chronological timeline of expected events that are going to happen in the end times. Um, he's going to help them understand what are some, some things that are going to happen, some chronological expectations that are going to happen in the end times. That's what he's going to do in verses 1 through 31. Now, after that, starting in 2432, going all the way through 2530, after he's given the timeline, he's going to tell them, based on the timeline, and now you know what are some things that are going to happen in this, there's a way that you're supposed to live. There's a, there's a way that you're supposed to think, act, re- be ready, in response to the fact that these particular things that in verses 1 through 31 are going to happen. So 2432 through 50 or section 2 is a series of lessons that Jesus gives to the disciples. And in this particular teaching, he's only talking to the disciples. A series of lessons on how to watch, how to wait, how to live, how to be a Christian in those particular end times. How to be a follower of Jesus. Based on the chronological timeline, this is what it's supposed to look like for you to live. And then the last section, which is in chapter 25, starting in 31 through 46... Um, that last section is the warning of the final judgment that's going to happen, the final promise of Jesus' second coming. So that's kind of the, the big picture outline of what's going on. So as I said, verses 1 through 31 is the chronological outline of the way things are going to unfold. What we're going to do out of those first 31 verses is just kind of zero in on the first 14 verses um, because there's a little bit of difference between the, those two. And the first 14 verses... Um, what we are going to see here are, are, are the signs that are not really, quote, the signs. And what that means is there's a series of signs that help us see that we're in, going into the end times, okay? And for the first 14 verses, Jesus is going to say, these are some signs that help you see that you're in the end times. But these particular signs that are not, quote, the signs um, are signs of the end times, but there's things that follow that are like clearly the end time signs. So what we're going to see in these first 14, 14 verses are signs, but they're signs that happen in every particular generation. All the way back to when, after Christ was crucified, he was buried and then resurrected, that particular generation saw these signs that we're going to see today, the signs that are not these signs. And then 100 years later and 100 years later, and even right now in 2013, these particular signs, there's three of them, are going to be signs that we are seeing right now. And so what Jesus is trying to help you see is these signs that we're going to talk about today, the signs that are not the signs, are still important. They're in the Bible. They're happening to us like an earthquake. That hurts people. People die. People are very much like taken away from their mom and dad, sometimes forever. So they're real signs, and we don't want to minimize them because they're in the Bible, but they're not the signs. Now, um, here's the danger, (laughs) all right? I'm doing 
hopefully going to be able to do a gospel-centered sermon on eschatology, the study of end times. And so I want, when we hear that, for it not to just be some kind of information exchange, that you just like, oh, end times, I'm all about that. Hit me up with some inf- information about that stuff so I can really understand Revelation, but don't let it affect the way I have to go live this afternoon on Mother's Day. So uh, I, you're not like that, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm shooting for. So my, my goal is I'm thinking, how do I look at a particular text that's about end times and signs of the end times and challenge us to live as Christians today, May the whatever it is, 10th, 11th, 12th, I don't know, May the whatever, um, as Christians, Right? So that's the challenge. Well, the beautiful thing is, in this particular 14 verses, Jesus actually ends with a couple of applications for us right now, real life gospel implications for us today. So praise Jesus he did that because I'm, I'm lost without that. So um, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the three end times um, signs and then we're going to have those two uh, gospel applications. Now here's the thing. Um, if you were here with us a, a few weeks ago, I said we're going to do that in chapter 23. Uh, chapter 23 was a, uh, the word of the day that day three weeks ago was excoriating. Like it was Jesus excoriating. It's kind of like a verbal spanking to the Pharisees and scribes. They were thinking they were followers of God, but they were not. And he calls them all the things that you can think of, scribes. He calls the scribes hypocrites. He he tells them that they're children of the devil. Um, basically, what he calls them brood of vipers in verse 33. I mean, he just lets them have it because they are so in love with rules and not the God that created the law and the rules that, that he's telling them they're missing him completely. So we did that entire chapter um, in one particular day. Um, but at the very end of it, after all these kind of pronouncement of woes that he does in 13 and 15 and 16 and 23, there's those seven woes. Right there at verse 37 through 39, there's um, a, a little bit of a conclusion that I think was a, a, a reminder of the goodness and graciousness of God in the gospel that the Pharisees and scribes were just completely missing. But also, if you remember a few weeks ago, he kind of hints towards the second coming. Look at 37 through 39, and it'll be, I think, helpful for us as we're going into this discussion of end times. It says in 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. How often, here it is, the the graciousness of God, this picture of God being painted out to us. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. If you would have just repented, if you would have just come to me and loved God, not the rules. If you would have just come to me, I would have forgiven you. And so this amazing picture of the graciousness of God is being shown to them, but they would not. And when they would not, Jesus looks at him at verse 38 and he says, see, your house is left desolate. Now, as we read this, we can see he must be talking about the spiritual condition of their hearts. The house of them, their heart, their spiritual condition is desolate because they're so far from him. But there's also a little bit of prophecy going on in verse 38. And so the disciples, as they're here in verse 38, they're thinking in physical terms. They're looking at the house, the temple, and they're like, desolate. Looks like there's a building here. And so that's, that's the question that's being asked in 24.3. They're looking at the buildings and they're like, how's the house desolate? I see the house the temple. Here it is. So we would have missed it too. And then in verse 39, Jesus hints towards his second coming where he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again. So he's in the temple and this is the last time Jesus will be in the temple. He walks out of the temple. This is Tuesday, late afternoon, Tuesday. And we know that he's going to be 
The false trial is going to happen on Thursday and be put to death on Friday. So this is two days before his death. And he says, this is the last time you'll see me. And in verse 39, it says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, The second coming where you'll look at me and you'll say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's, he gives a little hint to the second coming. And then that's what leads us into this next couple of chapters where Jesus is going to teach us on last times. So before we jump into last time talk, I, I do want to give just two, I'm sorry, three um, opening cautions. Because when we start talking about end times, it's like giving away free pizza and free donuts to people. You're like, we're going to talk about end times. Well, I want some of that. Let me get up there. I want, you, know, you, just, you want some pizza and donuts as soon as you hear it. And you're like, end times, those things interest me. I, let's get out our charts. I made one last week. And we're, you know, the point is, I think that there is a little couple opening cautions if we're going to study end times. And let me, let me give you those opening cautions. And I think these are important. Number one, we're talking about end times, which means we're talking about the future. And so since we're talking about the future, some of these events are just uncertain. We can talk about the resurrection with certainty. It's in the past. There's historical evidence as well as lots of um, internal evidence in the scriptures and, and faith that Christ really bore the weight of our penalty on the cross for us. This is all objective things that we can talk about. We can talk about with, with certainty. But as we look forward to the future, a caution is that we need to realize to some degree we can simply not know everything. And we've got to be okay with that. We, we can't think that we can know everything. So that's the first caution. The second caution is, as we study the end times, we cannot make the study of the end times the main thing. We don't want to have out the big chart and that's all we think about. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus, his gospel, and making disciples. Now, it, it's important. I'm not saying the end times isn't important. Jesus wouldn't have put it in the Bible if it wasn't important. So I'm not saying it's not. It is. But we still have to remember, a caution for us is, keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ, his gospel, and making disciples. The third, um, the third caution is this, is... Don't let yourself, and I just mean it straightforward, don't let yourself get freaked out. This is what I mean. Um, I can remember distinctly in eighth grade, as I'm sitting on the bus, um, I had to ride the bus. Yes, mom and dad, I didn't like the bus. They listened to my podcast. So anyway, um, I had to ride the bus. I did not like it. I wish I could have been driven or had a ride or something, but I sat on the freezing cold or the stinky, hot, smelly bus every day. And there was this guy, his name's Michael. He's sitting across from me. And so um, I was saved around eight or nine. And so by eighth grade, I don't know how old I was. What, how old are you, 14? I'd been a Christian for a little while. And I was, you know, super zealous. Um, so this guy, it, it, for some reason, I can't remember. He had not been in, in church ever before in his life. And so we're talking about uh, God. And I thought, perfect t- opportunity for evangelism, I'm going to try to literally scare the hell out of him. Like, he's going to hell, and I want to scare him so bad that he doesn't want to go to hell, but wants to go to heaven. So I just launched into Revelation, the end times, and 666, and the Antichrist, and, you know, everything gets dark, and the rapture, as, as well as an eighth grader could, who'd been in church his whole life. And literally, like, I think, I, I mean, I really scared him. Later on, one of my friends like. Michael doesn't even want to see you anymore. He doesn't want to sit around you on the bus. You scared him so bad. I'm like, so evangelism through scaring people um, is not the best idea. And what I'm saying is that can happen. Like when you, when you read this and you start thinking about signs and we hear about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and we start thinking, oh, that's happening. I'm going to watch the news and uh, every day I'm going to see the news and see more wars and say, well, then that political figure or that religious figure in America or 
outside of America must be the Antichrist. So it's time to build a bunker and get all the stockpile of guns and ammo and food and water. And me and my wife are going to go live down in the bunker for 40 years because I'm freaking out right now. Please don't do that. Like, that's the third caution. Don't end up in a bunker after this, all right? I don't think anybody will, but, but please don't end up in a bunker. Um, <laughs> that is not what we're aiming for. Uh, that is not what Christ is aiming for in, in teaching this. He's not wanting us to end up living underground. Um, so launching into verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the building. So he leaves the temple, and as he was going away, if you, if you didn't read verse 38 and you're reading this, you just think, and Jesus left the temple and he was going away, and his disciples came pointing out to him the buildings of the temple. And you're like, what is this, like a Monty Python sketch? Like, Jesus, you ever seen this building? Where's your camera? Let's, this is an amazing structure, Jesus. Like, you just read it and you're thinking, why is Matthew telling me that he's pointing at the buildings? Because of verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus just said, See, your house is left to you desolate. And they're thinking, they're walking out and they're like, uh, Jesus, you're saying desolate? Have you, have you seen that right there? It, it's not desolate. There it is. That's a nice little edifice there. It looks perfect. The, the temple is, is looking great. And so he, he's thinking to himself, the disciples are thinking to himself, what are you talking about laid to waste? What are you talking about desolate? There's buildings right there. So they're, they're pointing out to him the fact that they're not desolate. And so Jesus, when he hears that, he gives them an answer here in verse 2. As they're pointing out buildings, um, he says, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Pointing at the, the buildings. And he says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what he's doing here in this, in this chapter, in verse 2, is he's going to give a, a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple that is going to happen. Actually, history has bore out for us and has shown to us 40 years later, there is the destruction around AD 70, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, I see the building. In 40 years, it's going to be knocked down. It's about to happen. Now, this is important that we know that about 40 years, the destruction of the temple happens. It's important that Matthew puts that in the conversation in verse 2 for us, because in verse 3, that destruction of the temple where Jesus says that, the disciples are thinking, there's, there's a building. And Jesus is like, yeah, those are going to be knocked down. And the disciples hear, knocked down? Well, that means, see, it's desolate is true. And the next question is, When's that going to happen? What, they're going to be knocked down? So we see that in verse 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, there's a little bit of time between verses 2 and 3. Um, I think it's just walking distance time. They leave the temple. They walk up onto the Mount of Olives. Mark 13, 3, which is a parallel passage, tells us that as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, kind of out in their view, they can see the temple. And so however long, I have no idea, however long it ta- takes to walk from where the temple was up to the Mount of Olives to be able to see the view, that's the distance of time, I think, between verses 2 and 3. And there they are. It's just him and his disciples. They're looking at it. And the disciples look at him on the Mount of Olives. And they came to him and they say, Tell us when these things, the destruction of the temple that you're talking about, will be. And, second question, that was question one. Second question, what will be the sign of your coming and those at the close of the end of the age? So they ask two questions here uh, that's kind of setting the tone for the rest of chapters 24 and 25, or the sixth teaching discourse, which is, when's the destruction of the temple going to happen? And when's your second coming going to happen? Because we want to understand those things. Now, here's what's interesting here. Jesus, to me at least, maybe to you, hopefully, um, Jesus is trying to help them understand something. The disciples thought that the timing of the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus were actually going to be 
simultaneous or very close kind of events. But Jesus is actually trying to help them see that in this next unfolding teaching, specifically the first 31 verses, the chronological way that the end times are going to happen is that these two events are not going to happen simultaneously, but instead are going to happen at different times. And from 2013, as we look back at history, we can say, oh yeah, that's right. Because way over here by the stairs in AD 70, that was the destruction of the temple. But here we are in 2013 and we still haven't seen the second coming of Christ yet. And so they aren't two, two events. But the disciples thought that they were. They thought as soon as that, that temple was destroyed, Jesus was going to come back and that was it. And he's trying to help them see that they're not a simultaneous event. They're two separate events. And so that's kind of the point of what he's going to be launching into here um, and and start answering. And it says in verse 4, Jesus answered him, See that no one leads you astray. Make sure you understand. Listen to the... He's telling them, listen to the words of Christ in, regard, in regarding to the way the end times is going to happen. They're not going to happen together. And there's other things that are going to happen that you don't need to be led astray. See that no one leads you astray. Just as a side note, apt reminder, I think for all of us, um, as easily as the disciples can be led astray in regard to thinking of end times, you and I can be led astray in our own Christian walk by sin. Don't let yourself get led astray by the world, um, the sinful things of the world, or people or or whatever we certainly want to be involved in the world with people so that they come to know christ but just as easily as they're led astray we can be led astray that's just a side application to that but just as a reminder we we want to not be led astray um the next thing is uh see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name now we've perhaps heard some news of this in verse five it says many will come in my name saying I am the Christ, and look at this, and they will lead many astray. Verse 5 is signifying to us the absolute necessity that we know the scriptures and that we know what Christ has said, Jesus has said, in regard to his second coming. It's just a a challenge and and a reminder that we deeply need to be in the scriptures to know Christ and to know the things that he's taught us and in regard to the end of the age as well. So we don't need to be led astray. Um, verses five through seven is that is one of these first signs. And it says, so there's going to be one of the, one of the things is that people are going to come and say they're Jesus. Another one of the things in verse six says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Um, the la- one of the stats I heard recently is that right now in this particular time period that we're in, that there are, I think, 60 different wars going on, very small and big all over the entire world. And as we can look back over the ages, there have always been wars going on between people. I mean, right after the first sin, Adam and Eve, the next sin was brothers warring against each other. And it's been like that since. There's always been and always will be wars. And so, because we're hearing wars on our news channel does, should not make us think that tomorrow is the end times. It could be, but it doesn't mean it automatically is. And so he tells us that when he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. People are going to say they're Jesus and they're not. People, there's going to be wars, but there's always going to be wars. Remember, these particular things in verses 5 through 7 are, are signs that have been happening in the 1st century, the 2nd century, the 3rd century. They're, they're signs that are similar to every single generation and century that's, happening, that's happened since Christ till now, over the last 2,000 years. And then you can also see in verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom will rise against kingdom. That's happened over the last 2,000 years. There will be famines. 
There's been famines for two. Just because you see a famine now doesn't mean Jesus is coming back like right now. Sell everything, get in the bunker. Like that's, that's, that's what he's saying. And there's going to be earthquakes. There's, there's going to be natural disasters. We hear of them all the time. Maybe more because we live in a, a smaller kind of global internet connected society in this world now. But they're, all, they're always happening. And so verses 5 through 7, um, one of the things that we can see in this, this kind of three signs that we're going to see here that are not the signs but still important, that's kind of the title. The first sign out of those three is verses 5 through 7, which we just saw, which is the general kind of general meaning. It's not just specific to believers, but to every person in the world, the general tumultuous trials and destruction that are going to be happening in the end times of the world. That's, that's the first sign that's not the sign, which we'll see next week. All right. Um, after that, we can see here in verse 8. And Jesus, after he says all those things in verses 5 through 7, these kind of big, tumultuous things that are be going on, which is people saying they're Jesus, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, all those kinds of things, nations against nations. He says, all these things, all these that are kind of listed, are but the beginning of birth pains. But the beginning of birth pains, meaning, let's enter into the Mother's Day section of the sermon. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in that room before. I've been in that room four times now, all right? And I'm going in in about a month on the fifth time. And here's what's going on in that room. Now, I would never, ever say that I'm an expert. My wife would be mad if I said, well, she wouldn't be mad, but she would say, you're not an expert because you never felt it. So let's, let's just say, this is all observation. I believe that it hurts, all right? But my, my observation from being in the room and, and experiencing kind of uh, birth pains, if you will, is this. Um, birth pains are crazy. And what I've observed is that the pains are not the same feeling the whole way through. Meaning, when you start, it doesn't hurt that bad comparative. I'm, I'm saying it still hurts, okay? So don't freak out. It, I know it hurts, all right? I think. So I'm not, I don't feel it. But my point is, <laughs> here they are experiencing it. But one thing's clear when I've been in the room is that there is a trajectory of growth of pain, right? Until you get to the very end where it's just whatever, really, really bad. So for moms, that's what it's like. Um, it's, yeah, that's my observance. But my point is, is that he's saying that it starts with some kind of, kind of painful thing. It is painful, but it's a growth of being terrible. And Jesus in verse 8 is pointing to the, those verses five through seven, and you're starting with things that are people saying they're Jesus, people saying that there's wars, people saying that there's um, nation against nation, famines and earthquakes, which is, which is bad. There's no question. If we know somebody that's been in a natural disaster, it tears us apart. It's, it's horrible. It makes us feel like, wow, I can't believe I know someone that was injured or harmed or killed in a, in a certain kind of tragedy. And that's the beginning of their birth pains. And what he's saying is that the honor trajectory of the end times is that the pain becomes even more. Um, he says, this is just the beginning of birth pains. And then in transition, verse 9, he says, then. So that first thing we see, one of the signs that's common in every generation, a sign that are not these signs, but still signs, are all those general tumultuous trials that happen um, for us in verses 5 through 7. Verse 9 he takes it from the general kind of thing that happened to every person in the world, and then he's going to narrow it down for the second sign straight to just believers. And he's going to say this to people in verse 9. Then they will deliver you, talking to the disciples, but certainly um, application is going and broad to all Christians. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for 
my name's sake. You will be hated by nations, or by all nations for my name's sake. And so the second thing that we can see here, um, where the first one was broad and the second one narrows in, is that there is specific persecution for the followers of Jesus in the end times of the world. So a second sign, and again, this is something that we've seen in every generation. There's books written, Fox's Book of Martyrs, that helps us see over and over and over in every generation that there have been people that have given their life um, for the gospel. And so the verses 5 through 7, talking about fam- famines and earthquakes, Spurgeon says, these famines and these earthquakes are a reminder to us that we are to wean ourselves away from the world where all these greater sorrows are to be experienced. And remember that this world is passing that we should not latch on and be excited about the world because when we see all these things, we should say, this is so terrible. I don't want this anymore. I want Christ, so come. And as we're going out and we're telling people about Christ, we'll experience those things. And as we're telling people about Christ, we're going to experience verse 9 where people will say, oh, you're a Christian? I hate you. I don't like what you have to say about Jesus. I don't like the fact that you say Jesus is the only way to Christ. I don't like that you're calling me a sinner. I'm not calling you a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm saying we're all sinners, but they will get very angry and they'll want to put us to death and we'll be put through tribulations. So the second um, thing is that there's specific persecution for the followers of Jesus. And Spurgeon says, whenever Christ's gospel has been preached, men have risen up against them as messengers of mercy and afflicted them and killed them wherever they could. He says that there's not one land in the entire world that, not ha- that has not been stained by the blood of martyrs. And so since Christ knows this, he has given us those that will be persecuted or may one day face persecution or maybe have been persecuted and it wasn't unto death. He's given us solace in his scriptures. Um, in the book of Matthew, in his very first teaching discourse on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, um, like two years ago when we we're in the Sermon on the Mount, We've studied through this, but I want to read it one more time, just in case uh, you weren't with us. And this is straight from Christ to those that will be persecuted. If we are recipients of the special special persecution, even in our day, for being followers of Christ, this is what he says. We we may ask ourselves, why is this happening? This is so painful. I don't want this to happen. This is what he says in 5.10. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's not usually what we think when we're persecuted, that we're being blessed. But he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Not only are you blessed, but you should even rejoice and you should be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. And so there is solace for us in the word of God if we receive persecution or will receive persecution because of our declaration that Christ is the way to know, to know God, that he is the only way to be saved. And that is a sign at the end of the times. And then we're going to see, um, for those that are Christians, for those that would even maybe say that I am a Christian, um, but when they're persecuted, they leave, that, that leaving is a third sign. So the first one was, general tumultuous trials for the whole world. The second one is the persecution to the Christians. The third one is going to be right here in in verse 10. It's whenever people leave the faith. Look at this in verse 10. Um, 
And then many will fall away. There's one little phrase that tells us that they're leaving the faith. And betray one another and hate one another. They're leaving each other. And verse 11, and many prophets will arise, and here it is, and lead many astray. And then in verse 12 it says, and because lawlessness or, or sin will be increased, the love of many will grow cold or be decreased. And so the third sign that's been true in every generation and is evident to help us see that we're in end times is that Jesus is giving a prophecy of those who will leave the faith because of persecution. Now, we need to be really clear about what we mean when we say leave the faith. Um, We have fall away. We have betray one another. We have lead many astray. And these three phrases in verses 10 and 11 are saying and prophesying all the same thing, that they're going to be people that claim to be Christians. But when persecution came, because they were persecuted, they were exposed as frauds. It's not that they were believers and they just decided this is too tough, that I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. We don't lose our salvation. They were exposed as frauds. In other words, persecution reveals traitors within the church as well as to the church shows the enemies to us that want to persecute us. That's what persecution does. So I I don't subscribe to the fact that people were Christians and said, this is too hard, I'm leaving. Instead, for the people that are Christians, that are going to stay true, when people say, this persecution is too hard and leave, it shows us they were actually a fraud. Let's put some Bible under that, because that's a pretty big claim, maybe. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 and verse 19. Um, John is writing here. We can see that he's, he's um, completely convinced that he's in the very end, the end times. This is what he writes in chapter 2, starting at verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. He, he believes that he's in the very end times. Children is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, just talking about what Jesus said. People are going to rise up and say they're Jesus. And he's like, they're not. Don't believe it. You'll know. You'll really know. and it's coming. So now many antichrists have come. So there's already been that prophecy of Jesus in verse 5 that antichrists are going to come. That's already been fulfilled just within 50 years that many antichrists have come, he says, and and have said that they were Christ, but they weren't. And so then it says, therefore, we know that this is the last hour because antichrists are coming. But again, those are the signs that aren't the signs, but certainly help, helping us see that we're close to the end times. Then 19 is the key verse that helps us see that those that were persecuted that leave were exposed as frauds. It says in 19, they went out from us. They are the ones that left the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were in the church, but he's saying even while they were in the church, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. When persecution came, if they were really real Christians, they would have stayed. But he says, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. To make sure that they realized that they were exposed as frauds. Because sometimes it's unbeknownst to them. Sometimes they know I'm really a faker. I'm just, I'm just getting through the motions to try to fool people. I like this community. I like the way it makes me feel. I'm not really a follower of Christ. I just like not feeling bad. Or they just think they are. And that's, I think it's the Matthew 7, 21, 22, 23, where they say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out? Didn't we do all these things? And he's like, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So there are people who think they're Christians. And he's saying, First John 2 is saying that there are people 
that will be exposed as frauds. And that's the third sign that in verse 12, 10 through 12, people will be led astray. And that's a sign that we're in the end times. It's not the sign. So all those first three are things that we've experienced right now in 2013 in our generation, and they're experiencing in every generation. So the big question you should be saying to me is, well, Fudd, great. Um, <laughs> what, what does that have to do with me right now? I, I want to have a handle, something that, 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 that really like, what, how do I walk out of here with that information? Here's, thank goodness Jesus tells us. In verse 13, he's going to, after he told us all these signs that are going to kind of be um, in every generation, in verse 13, a little transition word. These transition words are key for you. Therefore, then, but, for. Look for those things as you study. And here's one right here. But, and so what he's going to do is try to roll into us some application. So here's, here's the question then. Um, I don't know if I ever said number three, but number three is prophesy of those who will leave the faith because of persecution. Back up to the question here. What are the personal, concrete, gospel implications for everyday life according to the stuff I just heard? What are the, the concrete things that, that apply to me according to those signs? Jesus is going to tell us here in verse 13 and verse 14 what they are. Verse 13, it says, but based on those things, this is how you should live because you're in the generation of these end times as well. This is how you should live. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So the first concrete gospel implication for you and I, based on those particular verses, is this. Number one, an exhortation from Jesus to endure until the end to be saved. That's the first concrete thing. And you may say, well, that sounds still kind of like airy, kind of subjective, endure. That's what you're supposed to do, endure. Is this what enduring looks like? I'm enduring. Okay, so what does endure mean? Because it's such an ambiguous word. Um, endure here is a, can be um, an, an ambiguous word. So let's talk about what this means. And first of all, before we jump in, just, for, just to, so you can see the contrast. Matthew is constantly painting contrast for us. 10 through 12, you have those that leave the church. Verse 13, the contrast, those that stay, those that choose to endure. So what does endure mean? What do we mean by the word endure? Do we mean when we say endure in order to be saved, white knuckle it now. Just press hard with all your devotion and discipline and get busy being a, a, a worker. Is that, is that what Jesus means when he says endure? The idea of perseverance in the faith, does it mean just start working harder now? Now that Jesus has said you're a believer, work real hard. Does it mean that whoever, now that you're a Christian, sweats the most for Jesus is the, the real winner? That's how you endure? I don't think that that's what enduring means. So when we say those who endure to the end to be saved, it doesn't mean, I, I, I don't think the Bible is teaching us that it means now work real hard so that you can make sure you're saved. It, it certainly, we will have good works. There's no question about it. We will have works, but those works are not the things that are causing us to endure. So let's, let's talk about what we mean here. Philippians chapter 2. Um, we, we preached the book of Philippians a little bit ago, but let me read a couple verses in Philippians. I think that will help us understand what we mean when we're saying endure. First, in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12 and 13, this is what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, much more in my presence, but much 
So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. This is the exhortation, very similar to the idea of enduring. Paul says to them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're a Christian now, work out your salvation. Not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Endure till the end to be saved. I think these are very similar ideas. So how does that look? What does that look like? Look at the next verse. He's going to tell us. For it is God who works in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And for it's God that's going to do it. And how's God going to help you work out? For it's God that's doing it. When you're told to work, realize that it's actually God who's working in you. And so your work is only going to happen because it's been begun by God. And what is it that he's going to actually do? For it is God who works in you both. So God's going to do something in me. He's going to cause me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's going to give me the desire to want to and persevere and endure. And he's actually going to give me not only the will, but the work that I'm supposed to do. So that everything I do is for his glory, begun by him, for him, by him, through him, not me. So he gets the glory and I don't. And so when we're talking about enduring here, the exhortation to endure is not an invitation or a threat, for some of us that are legalists, to try harder and sweat real good for Jesus. Instead, this um, invitation to endure is something different. Let me show you Philippians three sixteen, And I think that this is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Philippians three sixteen, Not John three sixteen, which I love. Philippians three sixteen is amazing. So is John three sixteen. Only let us hold true, notice the words here, to what we have attained. In Christ, we have been declared completely righteous by God. There's nothing that can take that declaration. If Jesus has really taken all of the punishment and wrath of God for us on our behalf and has really given us all of his righteousness, there's no more righteousness in the eyes of God in terms of our justification, our right standing of God that needs to be given to me more. Therefore, what I have already attained is complete forgiveness, complete innocence, complete righteousness. And verse 13 says, therefore, let us Hold true to what we've already attained. What we've already attained is complete forgiveness and complete declaration of righteousness. Therefore, in God's eyes, you are completely righteous. So what you're to do then is to hold true to what's already true. So what's already true is that I'm not a sinner. I am completely forgiven. I have the righteousness of Christ. I have the mind of Christ. I'm filled with the Spirit. So when a sin comes, I can say, that's not what's true. God's already said that I'm righteous. I don't have to do that. By the power of the Spirit can be put to death. I didn't put it to death. God's going to put it to death because he's already, I'm holding true what's already true. I'm righteous. That's what's true, not that. And so I don't hold on to sin and say, I can't let it go. The Lord will kill it through me by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8, 18, Colossians 3, 5. And so when we see this, this invitation then to um, endure, this is not white knuckle. Instead, it is, which is so beautiful, the declaration or exhortation for us to endure is to not um, work harder, but instead continue trusting in Christ's finished work that's already been done for us on the cross. The endurance is trusting what Jesus has done. So we endure in the faith, which is just the word believe. We endure in continually believing that 
Jesus has already secured for us our righteousness, secured for us our right standing before God. And when that's secure, yeah, yeah, I want to work for God. And working is not earning my, my right standing. It's not making sure I get saved. Jesus has already saved me. Instead, it is nothing gives me a greater joy to give him all the worship I can through the good works that I can give to my fellow man. Because my right standing is already secure. So the first thing, the first gospel implication for you is keep believing that. Keep believing the gospel. Because you are saved. And if you endure, continually believe, even if persecution comes, you continue trust. You're not exposed as a fraud. You will be saved because you've already been declared righteous and you're holding true to what you've already attained. All right, that's awesome. I'm I'm just surprised that y'all are just staring at me like that because that's some good stuff right there. Not that I said it, but God said it. The second one is verse 14. That's that's good. All right, verse 14. Um, So the second one, the first one is an exhortation to just continually trust in God, not in ourselves. The second one is in verse 14, which is, and it's so clear what it is. What's the second thing you can do? Trust the gospel, make disciples. Number two, it says, and this gospel, this Right there in verse 13, keep enduring in the, in the faith. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. That's the same word as preached. Proclaimed, pr- preached um, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all ethne, ethnic groups. I know it says nations, but it's the Greek word ethne, ethnic groups. As a testimony to all the ethne, all the nations, and then the end will come. Don't miss the, the kind of order there. But the second thing that you can do then is this. There is a proclamation of Jesus to us, the challenge that we as Christians are now to go finish the task. We are to trust in the gospel, endure to be saved, and we are to be actively participating in finishing the task. We don't hit the snooze button on this. We don't just say, eh, someone else can do that. You're not supposed to be laissez-faire about this. Every Christian... Every Christian is to be intricately and deeply in whatever season of life you're in, involved in finishing this task because we want the second coming of Christ. Like we, we are so tired of sin. We're so tired of famines. We're so tired of earthquakes. We're so tired of war. We're so tired of the world and what's in it. Not that we don't want to see people get saved, but the things of it that we want, we want rescue from it. Rescue me, Jesus, from this. Come now. And he's telling us, I will finish the task. This gospel will be proclaimed to all the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Then the second coming happens, which means we have a task. So I want to make sure you're with me here. Christ's second coming, according to this text, in some, and I would grant you mysterious way, I I don't fully understand it, is fixed and is harmonizing with the gospel being proclaimed and preached throughout the whole world to every ethnic group, then his second coming happens. I can can say it's mysterious and we don't fully understand it, and I don't know how finished the task is. There's actually a website that's dedicated to that called joshuaproject.net that keeps in track with every ethnic group. There's like 16,000. And we know how many we haven't reached and how many we have. There's there's people that are literally trying to map it out. And they're really serious about finishing the task because we want the second coming to happen. And I would invite you to visit those sites. 
but more really applicable to you is join the task. Join the task. George Ladd says, he's a, he's a commentator, he looks at this particular verse, he says, George Ladd said, this is the most important verse in the word of God for the people of God today. 24.14, the most important verse in the Bible. This is what he says. This is why. Because a lot of people are starting saying, which ethnic group? And they're making websites and they're freaking out and they're doing all this work. And he's saying, listen, God alone knows the definition of, de- definition of the terms here. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ does not return yet. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us be busy to get, let us be busy and complete our mission. Every single one of you are not only invited, but if you're in Christ, must be active participants in the task. And I know it's different, okay? I know it's different for everybody. Some people can go, some people can pray, some people can send money, some people can go short-term, mid-term, long-term, lifetime. We're all at different places. But we all must be as actively involved as we possibly can according to our station in life. This is why at Remedy Church, every other week, we pray for an unreached people group. It's not just because for fun. We want to constantly put in front of our church We'll be praying for the Kahar of India today. We want to constantly put in front of the church that we need to be thinking globally in regard to mission. And we need to be in our minds and in our spirits desperate for Christ's return. We will be actively more involved in the task when we are in our soul desperate for Christ's return. If we don't care about Christ's return that much, we won't be involved in the task. It's dangerous in America because it's so easy. Yeah, I got all the stuff I want. I kind of like it. He doesn't have to return right now. I got all my stuff. I got my toys. I got a house. I got kids. We're playing. We're going to Disney World next year. I mean, I want to do that first. We're not excited about Christ's return. I'm not actually going. So, like, we, We're not excited about Christ's return. Therefore, we're not serious about the task. And we must, within us, wean ourselves away from the pleasures and joys and sinful things of the world and move our minds to Christ's return. Be far more excited about that than pleasures and sin and money and whatever. And said, we want your return. And then I guarantee you will be far more involved in the task of Matthew 24, 14. So to conclude, I just want to have two challenges. You You can ask yourself, where are you not trusting the gospel right now? Where in your life are you not holding true to what you've already attained? If you're in Christ, that's not true of you. You can see that be put to death. It's not true of you. Don't believe that it is. Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin, past sins, present, and any future sins. They're all paid for and you've been completely declared righteous. Therefore, it does not have a hold on you. So walk into what you've already attained. Hold true to this righteousness that's yours. Endure. 
That's the first question. The second question is this. What are you doing for the task? What are you doing? Are you, are you thinking about it? I mean, maybe it's just as simple as right now. All you can do is go to joshuaproject.net and pray for an unreached people group every day. There's a new one every day. 16,000 unreached people groups, probably half of them are unreached. Some of them, like today, have 7.6 million people in that one group, and there's 8,000. Close to 2 billion people in this world that are unreached, meaning no access to and never have heard of Jesus and his gospel. We tell them about Jesus, they would say, who's Jesus? We're so gospel-saturated here, which is a good thing, but there are people that don't even know. And maybe that's where you can begin in joining the task. You're aware of that. I didn't even know that. I want to go and at least pray. God, while I pray, make me be more serious. And maybe he'll draw you to give. Maybe he'll draw you to go. Join the task. I know it's easy in America. Don't let that give you an excuse to not be a part of the task of making disciples. The main thing is Jesus, his gospel, and making disciples. So join the task. Jesus, thank you for this time that we can look at your word and we can meditate on what you've done for us. Thank you that your word is practical. It's so practical. There are big ideas like end times and signs, and, but it's so practical. You, you end with an exhortation to endure in the faith and to make disciples. And so I pray for my friends here and myself. Lord, if there's places where we're not holding true to what we've already attained, if we're well aware that we don't long for the second coming of Christ as much as we maybe long for the things of the world, would you reveal those things to us now? I pray that as we go into the Lord's Supper, we'd think on you and think of what you've done for us and meditate on those things and maybe even confess sin, repent, and then come to the table with gratitude for what you've done. Be with us now as we think and meditate. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.